Made it up here, didn't turn on my mic. Now I got it on. Hey, if you are a guest here this morning, as Pastor Jeff already mentioned, we are so thankful that you are here. If you're watching online, we are also grateful that you're reviewing with us. We ask that you would drop us a line. Let us know where you're watching from, how we can be praying for you. And then as Jeff mentioned earlier, uh, myself and some other pastors will be in the coffee shop afterwards. So if you are a guest in the house this morning, we would love to meet you, get to know you in that way. If you read Pastor Danny's uh, email uh, on Friday, he was letting you know that uh, the Lord has convinced him that he needs to take uh, a step back from some of his responsibilities. He's not taking a hiatus from us, but the Lord has asked him uh, to relinquish some of his teaching and preaching responsibilities. And as someone who loves to preach the word of God, that is an exercise of extreme humility and trust in the Lord. And so I, I want you to know that, Pastor Danny, as you're watching with your family in Alabama, we want you to know that we love you and we are grateful for the time that you and your family get to spend time together and rest. So we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. I want to invite you to go ahead and turn there. That's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. In late November of 2018, News Networks first introduced us to the name John Chow. John Chow was an American, but more importantly, he was a missionary who died trying to take the gospel to the people of North Sentinel Island. North Sentinel Island is located in the Bay of Bengal between India and Thailand, and it is the home to the North Sentinelese tribe. It is an unreached people group with absolutely no contact to the outside world. John died there because he believed the gospel was for all nations. He spent a lot of time preparing for that moment. He went to a Christian university, received education and later training, served on the mission field in Mexico, in Kurdistan, in South Africa, before eventually moving to the island of Port Blair. And from Port Blair, John convinced local fishermen to take him to a location near the island, North Sentinel Island, and there on the beach as I already mentioned, John died. And I wanna read for you an excerpt from John Chow's journal, specifically the last journal entry that John made. And he wrote on November 17th, 2018, to Brian, Mary, Mom, and Dad. You guys might think I'm crazy in all of this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever God has called you to, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of the Sentinelese tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshiping in their own language, as Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10 states. I love you all, and I pray that none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ, your son your brother, your friend, John Chow. In a 24-hour period, John visited the island three times. He traveled from the fisherman's boat by kayak, and when he made it to the beach, each time he was chased off of the island by the tribe. The third time, though, he was struck fatally with arrows, and he died. He was 26 years old. 26. I hope to live half of my life with, a, with as much passion in my thumb as John Chow had in his heart for Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with John, maybe his education, his missionary travels, his training, 
many of us might be able to look at those with a magnifying glass and find some secondary issues that we disagree with. But I think that we can all agree that we like that John went. I think that we can all agree that John Chow loved Jesus more than life itself. And I think that we can agree that John Chow did indeed believe that the gospel was for all nations and that it had to be proclaimed. The life of John Chow presents to us a challenge, very similar to the challenge of Paul's life that we're going to be looking at today in 2 Timothy, which is to proclaim Christ in the face of adversity all the way until the end. So I want to invite you, please look with me, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come to bring the cloak, or excuse me, when I come, bring the cloak that I left with you, left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Great Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Ubalus sends greens to you, as do Putin's and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. It's a unique thing to stand up here and preach a standalone sermon. It's another thing to stand up here and preach a standalone sermon from the very end of a letter. And so at the very least, we need to have an awareness of who Paul is writing to, where he's writing from, and what he's writing about. First, 2 Timothy is named after the recipient of the letter itself. So Timothy. Timothy was a young man and friend of Paul who Paul mentored and trained in ministry before eventually sending him off to do ministry on his own. And Paul is writing to Timothy from prison in Rome where he's awaiting execution. So as you can imagine, a letter between two close friends, it being the last letter that Paul would write, is incredibly personal. And he's writing to Timothy to charge him and to challenge him to preach Christ and to proclaim Christ to the very end in the face of any kind of adversity that he might encounter and to remain faithful to that end. Here we have a glimpse of a unique friendship and friendships are a blessing from the Lord. I think that we can all agree on that. There are friends that we see daily and that we enjoy their company and their fellowship. There's friends that we get to meet up with on occasion, but there's those special friendships that we see even fewer than that. Maybe years go by before we're able to reconnect and spend time together. But when we do reconnect, it's as if no time has passed at all. 
and we're able to pick up right where we left off. This is the unique friendship that Paul and Timothy share. And so Paul, longing for his close friend, is writing his final letter to him and inviting him, pleading with him to come quickly to see him in Rome. Now, in closing his letter to Timothy, Paul provides to us a lot of details. And there's a lot of names. Specifically in verses 9 through 13, Paul gives to us eight names, two men that he mentions unfavorably and six names that he mentions favorably. So let's first consider the first six, the, the favorable men. You have Cretans, Titus, Tychicus, Carpus, Luke, and Mark. Each of these men, in some capacity, is serving and working in ministry, preoccupied with advancing the gospel. So these men, Paul does not consider to be unfaithful. And Paul gives a list of, of where they are for us. Cretans is in Galatia, Titus is in Dalmatia, Tychicus, Paul actually sent to Ephesus, and he left Carpus in Troas. Luke alone has remained with Paul. It would be really easy for us to read that and think, oh man, poor Luke, you're considered the least of all the friends. But that's not the case. Luke has been faithful. He has stood by Paul, but friendships are also different. And while Luke is with Paul, Paul longs to see his close friend, Timothy. And so Luke should not be considered less than, but simply a good friend who's there, but not the best friend. He also mentions Mark. We're not exactly sure where Mark is at, but what is certain for us is that Timothy knows where he is at and that he will be able to pick Mark up on his way to see Paul in Rome. Now, the two men that Paul mentions unfaithfully are Demas and Alexander. And these men are not simply acquaintances, men that Paul brushed shoulders with as he was going about on his missionary journeys. These are men that Paul knew well, men that he considered brothers in the faith. Demas accompanied Paul on his mission, missionary journeys for four or five years. So we know within that relationship, there is a clear awareness and understanding of one another. But Paul mentions Demas for us in two other books, Colossians and Philemon. And because of Demas's present love for this world, he abandons Paul. And then you have Alexander. Alexander is believed, the same, is believed to be the same Alexander that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy in chapter one, verse 20, along with a man named Hymenaeus. Both of those men abandoned Paul because of their love for this present world. But this Alexander not only abandoned Paul, but opposed Paul to his face and is probably the one responsible for his arrest. If this is true, which I believe it is, in all of my study and all of my preparations, I do believe that this is the same Alexander. It gives us a very unique picture into Paul's heart, the condition, the emotion of where he is at as he's writing this letter. I mean, think about this. Two men that Paul considered brothers in the faith, two men that he trusted, abandoned him, one in time of need, and the other abandoned him and opposed him to his face, which led to his arrest. Paul is heartbroken. He's grieved. His heart is heavy. And so if you're familiar with 2 Timothy, I wanna invite you to look at the beginning of this letter, chapter one, verse five. We find a compliment here that Paul gives to Timothy. Now, the compliment by itself just sounds like a really nice thing for Paul to say. 
He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Unis, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. If this was just simply a standalone compliment, it would be a nice thing. But when we understand that Paul has been abandoned by close friends, that he feels alone in the face of obstacles and opposition, Paul's essentially telling Timothy in this letter, I know that you would never abandon me. I know that you would stand by my side. I know that you would have been there at my first defense. I know that you would continue to preach Christ in the face of opposition. You would not falter. And that's why Christian friendship matters. You know, Matt Chandler once said that Christians here in America have more in common with Iraqi Christians than we do have in common with our unbelieving neighbor next door. And that couldn't be more true. When I was in the military, I was deployed to Ethiopia for seven and a half months. And while I was there, I encountered a man on our camp, an Ethiopian, and uh, he was reading a book. And I wasn't certain because it was in his own language, but I was pretty confident that it was a Bible. And so I went up to him and I, I asked, are you a Christian? And he did not speak very good English, but he beamed with joy and he said, yes, I love Jesus. And even though him and I could barely communicate, from that day forward, we enjoyed one another's community. We loved being together because we recognized the spirit of God that was in one another. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how lonely the Christian life would be without our brothers and sisters in the faith? God has given to us one another to bear the burdens of life with. He's given us one another to hold each other accountable towards sin and also our commitment to God. He's also given us one another to do ministry with. What would it be like if you had no one to pray with? No one to encourage you with their words or by their example. Christian friendship matters, but it doesn't simply matter because it benefits us. Christian friendship matters because it benefits the world. Paul clearly has friendships in mind that bless him. That's easy to see. He, he mentions all of these individuals with fondness and with joy, except for Demas and Alexander, but he mentions many people here. And he clearly benefited from their relationship, was blessed by them, but he also has friendships in mind for the purpose of doing ministry. I mean, Paul is, is specifically talking to these individuals, well, about these individuals, to Timothy, and strategically thinking in his mind, as you can see, about advancing the gospel among the Gentiles. And he's in prison. He's asking for Timothy to come partner with him and to bring Mark. He's leveraging the Christian friendships that he has for the gospel. And if you are unaware of this, the reason that he is doing that is because every believer, every follower of Christ has been called to the work of ministry. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus in chapter four, verses 11 through 12 wrote this. He says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We here at Great Hills must work together to reach the city, our state and our nation and this world for the gospel. That's the entire purpose of our saved and redeemed existence that God has made us ambassadors of his glory to proclaim Christ to an unbelieving world. We must partner together in this. And we must do this with our words as well as our wallets. I'm not after your money and neither is God, but everything about us is the property of God. He has saved us and redeemed us, but he also created us and he sustains us. And so the gospel that he has placed on our hearts and in our minds, we must be generous with our words. We must take the gospel that has transformed us and proclaim it to those who have never heard and must believe. But we must also support the work of the ministry through the resources that God has blessed us with. In 2013, I realize this is a while ago, but in 2013, Wycliffe Bible translators estimated that it would cost $500 million to begin translating the Bible into languages that the Bible does not yet exist. $500 million in 2013. I can't imagine what that number would be now. In that same year, it was estimated that Americans spend $2.3 billion annually on Big Macs. 2.3 billion. For you, it might be a Chick-fil-A number one. But the point still remains the same. The resources that God has given to us, whether it is the gospel he has implanted within our hearts or the resources at our fingertips, we must use them to advance the kingdom of God. And we will do that together if we live with a kingdom focus. Which brings me to my second point, living with a kingdom focus matters. Now, Paul, even in the worst of circumstances, has not lost sight of his mission. His writing here does not sound like a man on death row. It doesn't sound like he's in panic. It doesn't feel like he's gripped with fear. He's just speaking matter-of-factly. That's because Paul is living with a kingdom focus. He asks for a cloak, books, parchments, and he also asks for Mark. Now, Paul's need for a cloak is obviously physical. Winter was approaching and he needed to keep warm, but all of his other requests are strictly ministry related. His request for books and parchment shows that he was a writer and a thinker to the very end. He's in prison and he's still looking for ways that he can partner with people in the gospel and advance it. He hasn't sat down and quit. Woe is me, I'm on death row, it's the end. No, Paul's making moves. This is remarkable to see. How often do we get caught up in our circumstances and think that it's beyond God's ability and so we're just gonna sit down and wait? How often do we circle the wagons thinking that in time, God will make a way and, and then I'll 
move forward in sharing the gospel. This is not to say that planning and strategy is not necessary. But while the wagons are circling, we must be proclaiming Christ. We must not cease in that endeavor. We also see that Paul's request for Mark continues to show that he's living with a kingdom focus. If you're familiar with Paul and his missionary travels and how things started, you know that he began his journeys with a man named Barnabas. And Barnabas is the cousin of Mark. Now as Paul and Barnabas were traveling together, in some way, Mark proved himself to be unfaithful in the eyes of Paul. And so Paul didn't want Mark to come along. And so he made this argument with Barnabas that they should leave him behind and they should continue in their travels together without him. But Barnabas stood by Mark. And because of this, Paul and Barnabas separated and went their, went their separate ways. But whatever difference, whatever opinion that Paul had of Mark, these two men have laid it aside for the purpose of seeing the gospel advance. Paul says that Mark is very useful to him for ministry. There are people in this room that have little opinions of one another. There are people in this room that would not be caught spending time together. There are people in this room that refuse to have a conversation. How can that be when God has saved us from so much? We cannot love a lost and broken world if we cannot love one another. In these walls, with one another is how we practice love. And then we take the love of Christ outside of this church building and we love those in need. If we want to love people best, we must love God most. And loving God most will cause you to put your pride down will cause you to seek reconciliation, will help you to exercise humility. Why? Because the gospel being advanced depends on it. When unbelievers look at our lives and they see no difference between the chaos and the drama that they themselves have and ours, what makes the gospel enticing? They must see transformation. They must see us as a united people living with a kingdom focus. And Paul also sees his arrest as well as his inevitable death as the culmination of his ministry, which is a very sobering kingdom focus. Look back at verses 16 through 18. Paul says, in my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him, be the glory forever and ever, amen. Did you hear that? Paul said that the Lord rescued him. Did he rescue him by keeping him from getting arrested? Did he rescue him by sparing him suffering? Did he rescue him by keeping him from going to trial? No, it's the opposite. 
He put Paul directly into incarceration. He put him in trial. But where he rescued him was from keeping him from being shut up so that the gospel would be proclaimed within the ears of some very high-ranking Roman officials. And Paul sees this as the culmination of his ministry and that the ultimate rescue will not be his freedom, but his execution. We have to be tougher as Christians. When the going gets tough, we get praying. We remember the promises of Jesus, his suffering, his example, and we press in and we trust that even in our suffering, Christ is being glorified. We don't boo-hoo, then I'll hear me. We can still lament and weep over suffering. But we must understand that our suffering has a purpose which elevates and highlights the gospel. We don't suffer like other people. We suffer knowing that we have a hope, which is why we can also say that where our hope lies matters. Paul is able to focus on the work of ministry, even in the face of death, because his focus is on the one who gives life. Paul's not banking on being released, as I've already mentioned. He's not banking on his Roman citizenship or his education, a well-presented legal defense. Paul has poured out his life for the gospel, and he's continuing to pour it out. Down to the dregs, everything he has, everything for the gospel. Where's your hope this morning? Is your hope in your career? Is your hope in your family? Is your hope in politics? Is your hope in Christian culture? Where's your hope? Jesus is everything that he promised to be. He is everything that John Chow believed him to be. He's everything that Paul has poured his life out for. But Jesus is not just hope for this life. Paul, being the prolific missionary and writer that he was by God's grace, writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If what we are about is moral conformity, religiosity, checking the boxes, we've got it wrong. We're not being conformed to a law. We're being conformed to a man, the son of God, Jesus Christ. Where in your life do you look most like Jesus? Where in your life do you see yourself faltering? His grace is sufficient to pick you up and to carry you on and to complete the mission that he has given to you, which is to proclaim Christ and make disciples of Christ. Paul also writing to the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter one, verses 27 through 28 wrote this. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. It is him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, this mystery that the world does not understand has been bound up in you. And God has chosen the method by which the proclamation of this gospel goes out is you and I. What a glorious thing that he has called us not only to himself, forgiven us and promises eternal life, but he has also made us part of his mission to save people. We get to proclaim the very message that has transformed our lives. We have to be faithful with this. We must be bold with this. The people in our city, in our state, and in our nation are not meeting us on beaches with arrows like John Chow encountered. They are encounter, we, what we are encountering, they're coming at us with low opinions, with differences of worldviews. What they don't understand is that we have the hope of life. Can you imagine if we found out for the past 20 years that pharmaceutical companies and medical doctors and so on and so forth had been, with, had been withholding the cure of cancer for profit, how enraged we would be. All of us to a degree have been touched by that horrible disease. I have a sister-in-law who is fighting it But the gospel, the gospel is not simply hope for this life. It is also the hope of the life to come. So how dare we hold it up? How dare we remain silent? We must use our friendships. We must be kingdom focused. We must stay focused on where our hope lies. And how we will be remembered matters. At the end of Paul's life, Paul's thinking about two things, how he can make God known among the Gentiles and those he loves dearly. Paul closes his letter with greetings, blessings, and affirmations. It's really a beautiful thing when we understand the heart of Paul and where he's at in his current season of life. I love the example that it gives to us. I'm also grateful for the example of older followers in Christ. There's nothing more motivating to me as a 36 year old man to see old saints who don't quit. Cause I've got a long way to go. And when I look to an older generation that continues to persist in their faith and to pursue Christ's likeness, that charges me up. I'm very fortunate in that I have two sets of godly grandparents. And while they both have incredible examples that they've, they've left for me, I wanna share a story with you, for you, about my dad's parents, my grandma and my grandpa. Um, my grandma has Alzheimer's and she has progressed very far in the disease. Um, at this point of her life, she can't really complete sentences. And, uh, Several years ago, my grandparents, they still lived in the, in the state of Minnesota and because winters were harsh, 
they were snowboarding it. They weren't staying in the state during the winter. They were traveling around, staying with grandchildren as well as their own children. And knowing that they were coming to my house soon, they had just left my brother's house. I called my brother to see, hey, you know, maybe you can give me some tips on some ways I can best serve them. I, I can best accommodate them. Let me know. And my brother tells me, grandma is in a very difficult place, but grandpa is absolutely incredible. I was like, that's an interesting statement. What do you, what do you mean? So my brother tells me that when they arrive, my brother lives in a two-story house and the accommodations that they were able to give was a bedroom for my grandpa on the second floor. But because of uh, grandma's Alzheimer's, they didn't, they didn't want her waking up in the night and potentially having an accident. So they, they put her in a single bed on the first floor. And on the first night, she woke up afraid, not knowing where she was. My 82-year-old grandfather slept on the floor by her bed for four days. Yeah, he loves my grandma well, but he loves God most. And when we love God most, we will love people best. That's the example that we see set by Paul. And when we love God most, and then we love people best, God makes us look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what he does here with Paul. Think about this. Paul was abandoned, opposed, and given over for arrest by a close brother in the faith. Jesus was abandoned, opposed, and handed over for arrest by a close brother in the faith. Paul and Jesus were both arrested on bogus charges. Jesus was empowered by the Father at his trial and his defense. Paul was empowered by Jesus at his trial and defense. Paul died trying to make the gospel known to the nations. And Jesus died so that you might know him. I hope that I live a life. I hope that you live a life that when people look at us, they cannot help but see Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you grateful for the example of Paul, grateful for the life that he lived. But Lord, most of all, we're grateful for how his life points to Jesus. We're so grateful that your son, Jesus Christ, allowed himself to be arrested, allowed himself to stand trial and allowed himself to be crucified on our behalf. Lord, we praise you that you are merciful and kind and that those whom you save, you also make us ministers of reconciliation to, to share with the lost and dying world the need and the hope that they can find in Jesus. Lord, help us to use our friendships to that end. Help us to reach the communities around us, our neighborhoods, our schools, our sports teams, our places of work, the acquaintances that we encounter at the grocery store or out at dinner. Lord, help us to live in such a way that people know where our hope lies. That they know that we are followers of Christ. Lord, we need you for this. We pray that you would empower us to be faithful this week. And that you would propel us forward even further to carry your gospel here in Austin, in Texas, in the United States and abroad. Lord, we pray these things trusting not in our power or in our ability, but trusting in you who has saved us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.